You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Our focus will be on verses 1 through 29. I'll read the whole chapter. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Yahweh our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did Yahweh make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Yahweh spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between Yahweh and you at that time to declare to you the word of Yahweh, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain, he said, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as Yahweh your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh our God, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as Yahweh your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us His glory and greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. 
If we hear the voice of Yahweh our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fires we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that Yahweh our God will say and speak to us, all that Yahweh our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And Yahweh heard your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I've heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as Yahweh your God has commanded you. And you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that Yahweh your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land you shall possess. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, teach us today as your people how to receive your holy word. Words from the holy God of heaven given to us because of your redemption and grace. And because of that, may we receive them, treasure them, hide them in our hearts. May they be our delight and our meditation. And as such, may we be holy as you are holy. Conform to the image of your Son for your glory. So bless now your words. Send your spirit toward that end. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Earlier, whenever we examined Genesis 3 and the curses that were pronounced there for breaking the Adamic covenant... The covenant of works, as some call it, or the covenant of creation, I believe, is a better way to speak of it. And the preaching of the gospel that was involved in those curses as they're pronounced upon the serpent, the one who would be born of the woman and crush the serpent's head. As we examine that, I said that that was the critical point at which human history is divided. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, The real division of the Bible is this. First, everything you get from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 3-14. Then everything from 3-15 to the very end of the Bible. And I believe that's absolutely true. And yet, we have to say that here also we we arrive at a critical dividing line. Not simply within Scripture itself, but within the church. Not just a theological division or a chronological division, dividing point, but an ecclesiological dividing point. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam say that it is the interpretation of the relation of the old covenant to the new that's the basis of all major divisions among Christians, meaning all the denominational differences derive ultimately from different understandings of the covenant at Sinai to us today. And while I would argue that the fundamental difference between us and our Presbyterian brothers 
goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's here where it really comes to a head in its expression. It's here also that we diverge sharply from our dispensational friends. And this division is becoming more and more marked just with evangelical Christians and churches in general. For many, the Old Testament, the law, is avoided like the Judean wilderness. No one lives there. It's flyover territory. We might visit it to pull out an illustration here and there. Or we may find some inspirational stories that we'll tell again and again. Dare to be a Daniel. Or slay the giants in your life like Goliath. We'll mine it in that kind of way. Or we may rip some sentimental lines from the psalmist here and there to soothe our troubled souls. Or glean a proverbial piece of wisdom here and there. But how few professing Christians can say with the psalmist, honestly, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.97 I'm afraid that Andy Stanley's asinine comment that the church today needs to unhitch her faith from the Old Testament, I'm afraid that comment, while many in the church railed against it and Andy himself tried to walk it back some, I'm afraid that it really wasn't that much of a needed exhortation if it were true. The church has largely unhitched herself from the Old Testament. As for those who are hitched or we desire to be, do we know what it is we're hauling? Well, we know it's law, but do we recognize that the trailer upon which we're hauling this law is covenant? Do we recognize that the covenant with which we're hauling law is a covenant of grace and redemption? Hijacking Paul's contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we take it places he never intended and pit the two against one another. And because we do so, now, even if we think we're hauling some law, we don't know where we're going with it. While I think evangelicals would largely agree in understanding that the law is meant to drive us to Christ, it's meant to show us our wretchedness and sinfulness and how we could never atone for sin by good works. While the law is meant to drive us to Christ, we failed to realize that Christ leads us back to the law. The law leads us to grace, but then grace brings us to the law. And further, because we don't know the old, our perceived notion of the new is hollowed out, shallow, empty, vacuous. We've lost the plot. We've lost the background, the images, the shadows, the promises, the covenant soil out of which the New Testament comes into bloom and fullness. In short, we've become strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, while I'd venture that the central portion of our text, the Ten Commandments, 
isn't completely alien to Joe Evangelical out there. I'd also wager that they're not something he meditates on often, something that he's reflected on deeply concerning the context in which they're found and what that means for them. Here Moses has summoned all Israel. And whenever you read he summoned Israel, that word Israel doesn't float in the air. Remember that these, we're in Deuteronomy, the fifth of the five books of Moses. It's part of this collective And Moses began at the beginning with Genesis. And he's traced God's covenantal dealings with man that came to a focal point with Abraham and were expressed again to Isaac and then to Jacob. And Jacob had his name changed on two significant occasions when he returned from his kindred and comes back to the land promised to his grandfather. He encounters God and he walks away forever with a limp and a new name. But it doesn't seem as if he really ran with that name because God visits him again at Bethel. And there he tells him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you, Genesis 35, 10 through 12. So Israel the man now has become Israel the people, and they're on the cusp of coming into the land promised them, and then becoming Israel the nation. And Moses calls for this people, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel becoming a nation. He calls for them to hear and learn, and they're to hear and learn the statutes and the rules, verse 2, or verse 1. The statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, they're to hear law, but they're not hearing sheer law. They're not hearing mere law. They're hearing law as part of covenant. Verse 2, Yahweh our God made a covenant with us in Horeb or Sinai. If whenever you read Deuteronomy 5 or Leviticus 20, or whenever you see the Ten Commandments posted somewhere, if the only thing you think is law and you don't think covenant, then you're not Thinking the best kind of thinking whenever you are thinking of the law. You cannot really think most highly and most truly about the law if the only thing you think of when you see these passages is law and not covenant. God's laws are covenantal. That will be unfolded more as we go along. And although this covenant, you notice, is distinct from the covenant God made with their fathers, verse 3. Not with our fathers did Yahweh make this covenant. Yet it's critical that you know know that this is distinct from the Abrahamic covenant. But it's not completely separate or unrelated from the covenant God made with Abraham. 
there's the calling upon their fathers in this. They are Israel. They are Jacob. The Israel who is hearing this are the offspring of Abraham. The Mosaic Covenant is a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. Moses opened Exodus speaking about how Jacob had become many. And they had come into this foreign land. And then very soon in Exodus 2, chapter 2, 23 through 25, Moses says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What God has done in the Exodus and bringing his people out of Egypt to bring them into that land promised to them. What he's doing here in the Mosaic Covenant is in remembrance of the covenant that he made with Abraham. You need to balance what Moses says here with what he says in chapter 29, 10 through 15. You are standing today, all of you, before Yahweh your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of Yahweh your God, which Yahweh is making with you today, that He may establish you today as His people, and that He may be your God as He promised you, and as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the covenant He's saying, I'm entering into with you today, is in faithfulness to the covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's distinct, but it's not unrelated. The Mosaic covenant is distinct from the Abrahamic covenant, the way the second story of a house is distinct from the first story. It's built on top of it. It's a partial fulfillment. In the cutting of this covenant, Yahweh spoke to His people, we read as it were, face to face. Verse 4. Out of the midst of the fire... And though Moses stood between them as mediator at this point, verse 5, yet they hear these words themselves. They hear this rumbling and the thunder, and they hear these words from the fire. And as they're hearing them, they recognize this is Yahweh, their God, their, their Redeemer, their Lord who is speaking to them. You remember the definition of covenant that I gave you from Earl Blackburn? A divine covenant denotes a solemn arrangement, divinely imposed, which places binding obligations upon the parties of the covenant. I said, you may not be able to define covenant, but you realize that a covenant is that which defines the relationship, and it's God who defines the relationship. You know you encountered a covenant whenever you find God talking a lot about how things will be. He's laying down the terms of the relationship. 
And just think of this. All of Genesis through Deuteronomy are a covenant document given to the people of Israel on this very occasion. So all that you've seen about the covenant of creation, the Adamic covenant, all that you've seen with the Noahic covenant, all that you've seen of the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of that is being disclosed as revelation given in this circumstance of the covenant being made between God and His people Israel at Sinai and being renewed now here with Moses on the plains of Moab. And as Israel hears her covenant Lord speak, she does so with fear and reverence, verse 5. You were afraid. You did not go up on go up into the mountain. She does so with, with reverence and fear. What was it that she heard being spoken by her covenant Lord from the fire? We refer to them as the Ten Commandments, more strictly translated. That it would simply be the ten words. These ten words that come from the fire. But before you get to the ten words themselves, there is this historical prologue that they heard from the fire. Many ancient covenant documents are outlined exactly the way the giving of the Ten Commandments here is, but also the way Deuteronomy is written itself. It, it reads like an ancient covenant document. And they would start with a historical prologue that explained how the relationship came to be. I am Yahweh your God, verse 6 who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These ten words from the fire, these ten words of covenantal law, are prefaced by a historical prologue of covenantal grace and redemption. God does not say, I will be your God, and then give His law. He says, I am Yahweh your God who has redeemed you. And then he gives them his law. Yes, as Paul explains, the law leads us to grace. Leads us to our need of grace. It leads us to Christ. But also Christ leads us then back to the law. The law leads us to our need of redemption. But then that redemption leads us back to the law. God has redeemed His people out of Egypt. And then, their Redeemer leads them to Sinai and gives them His law. Sinner, the law cannot make you fit for Christ. But Christ makes you fit for the law. He gives you a new heart. He writes the law upon your heart. The point of redemption is to bring you into Christ and then conform you to Christ to enjoy fellowship and communion with your triune God. And if you're being conformed to the image of Christ, you're being conformed to the image of the Christ who loved God's law, who wanted to keep it as an expression of love to His Father. If you know God's redemption, it doesn't lead you 
to think lightly and less of the law, but to esteem it properly, not as any way by which you could ever merit God's love, but because you know His love and you want to return love back to Him, you treasure His law. In Christ, then, the law is grace upon top of grace. Outside of Christ, it only shows you your wretchedness. But in Christ, it comes as a grace upon top of grace. So the law is given here is not contrary to God's covenant promises. It's not contrary to the Abrahamic covenant. It's built on top of what God has been doing. Whenever God cut that covenant with Abraham, manifest as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, the very same images that are evoked at Sinai, He did so promising, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see what God is doing here? Is in faithfulness to what He promised Abraham. It's the Abrahamic covenant coming into partial fulfillment. But, you will hear even some Reformed covenant theologians who will speak about Sinai as a republication of the covenant of works. The covenant made with Adam. As though... It was a step backward in one sense, you might say, in God's dealings with man. They'll pit the Abrahamic covenant against the Mosaic covenant in some way in saying this. I find it ironic that it sounds very similar to a classical dispensational view of how the law should be esteemed. Some classical dispensationalists, the old school dispensationalist, will even say that whenever Moses set these words before Israel, and Israel responds, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do, that they shouldn't have done that. They should have responded, grace, we need grace, not law, grace. But the Mosaic covenant is not a step backwards in God's covenantal dealings with man. It's a step forwards. It's not tearing down the Abrahamic covenant. It's building up on top of it. It is not a retreat from what God has been doing. It's an advance. The covenantal nature of these commands and their relation to the Abrahamic covenant and their anticipation of the fullness that yet lies ahead is plain as you look at the commands themselves. I don't have time to unpack them all for us, go through them all, but we've done that in our series through Exodus. I would encourage you to listen through those sermons again, one on each of these commandments, and reflect on these often. What I want us to consider just now is the covenantal nature of them. (coughs) So, hear these ten words. Uh, Just, uh, I I want to go through them all, but Catch them afresh and and notice the covenantal nature of them. 
it's these words that were heard from the fire. And in the previous chapter, Moses declared, chapter 4, 12 through 14, Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and rules. So these these words from the fire are the covenant. Chapter 9, verse 15, he refers to these tablets as the two tablets of the covenant. These two tablets are placed in what is referred to elsewhere as the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 34, 28, he tells, uh, he tells us that Yahweh wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. The ten commandments, the ten words. You can see the covenantal nature of of these words in the words themselves as you begin to examine them. The first one, you shall have no other gods before me. You see the covenantal nature of it? God has just said, I am Yahweh your God. You shall have no other gods before me. God promised Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be their God. This is the great end of the gospel. It's being anticipated in only a shadowy way here. But this is the end of the gospel, that God is our God and we are his people. That's the covenantal nature of the commands given here. I am Yahweh your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This is why when it comes to the command concerning idols, he says no to idols because I am a jealous God. He's jealous because he's covenantally wed himself to his people. (coughs) Look at the Sabbath. The Sabbath command is given because of the redemption that they've received and being brought out of slavery. It's to be a sign thereof. As circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. In Exodus 31, it carries the same dire warning. There, Yahweh tells them, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, Yahweh your God, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. In the same way that you violated the Abrahamic covenant by not being circumcised, you were cut off. You failed to keep the covenant sign of the Sabbath. You were to be cut off. He goes on and says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. And then finally, look at the, the first command from the second table. We refer to the two tables of the, of the law. The first six being manward in orientation. The, final, uh, the first four, the, the last six are manward in an orientation. And the first one, verse 16. Honor your father and your mother, as Yahweh your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land 
that Yahweh your God is giving you. So you see how these commands relate to the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant being given this land. And they tell the people how they can go on enjoying the blessedness promised in the Abrahamic covenant in this land. So Israel receives these commands in the context of covenant. And she models for us how we are to receive the the commands of God. We enjoy a greater and fuller redemption. As they replied, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. So too as his redeemed people in covenant with him. This should be our reply. But we need to remember that the Mosaic covenant is not the new covenant. The Mosaic covenant is what the new covenant refers to as the old covenant. But this does not mean less for us. It should mean more in terms of our response to God's law because it's now been written on our hearts. Now, after these ten words are spoken by Yahweh out of the midst of the fire, they come to Moses in awe. They've seen God speak and man live. They realize this is a unique position. They say in verse 26, Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? And so they say, lest we die, you hear and report back to us. And we have God's commentary on their request in verses 28 and 29. Yahweh heard your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I've heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. In all that they have spoken. Just rewind to that dispensationalist option that I put before you. When they said all that Yahweh has spoken we will do. That's part of what they have spoken. And they were right to say that. When your Redeemer puts before you law. It is right to say all that you have spoken. We will do. Oh, this is God continuing. Oh, that they had such a heart as this. Always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. The response is right. And yet you see something of the fragility. The oldness. The problem with the Mosaic covenant. There's still distance They're pleading for a mediator. There's still distance. And there's the expectation of failure. With the construction of the tabernacle, there would be increasing restrictions the nearer one got to the manifest presence of the Holy God. And as far as the failure spoken of, this note is hit on several times in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4. It speaks of the judgment that will come, verses 25 through 27, if they should act corruptly and break covenant by worshiping idols. Holds out the promise of restoration if they will repent. As you come near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, though, that if is spoken of as a certain when. 
29.4, Moses laments. To this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In chapter 31, verse 29, he says, I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. And then you read the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And Moses not only looks back at the redemption they've enjoyed, he looks forward and anticipates their falling away prophetically. In Deuteronomy, the covenant sanctions, or excuse me, the covenant stipulations, the commands, are followed by covenant sanctions. Blessed are you if you keep these commands, cursed are you if you break them. And following the sanctions given in chapters 28 through 29, Moses says, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curses, not if, when, when these things come upon you, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from the peoples where, he, where Yahweh has scattered you. And it's after this win that Yahweh says, and Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That is the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of saying, this is my co the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, same days Moses is speaking of. Declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Hebrews 10 refers to this covenant, spoken of in Jeremiah, anticipated in Deuteronomy, as the new covenant in Christ's blood. The old covenant is not the new. But the, the new is held forth in promise in the old. You see? The old covenant is not the new. It's not an administration of the new covenant. As our Presbyterian brothers will say. It does not administer the new as though they were identical. But it does minister the new. Holding it forth in promise to the true Israel within Israel holding it forth in form and shadows and types and images and promise. Of all the divine human covenants in the Old Testament, writes Paul Williams, Williamson, the one formally established between Yahweh and Israel at Sinai is certainly the most prominent. 
not only in terms of the space devoted to it within the Pentateuch, but also in terms of its numerous echoes, renewals, theological significance within the Old Testament as a whole. Indeed, as Mackenzie observes, this is the one considered the Old Testament covenant. This is the Old Testament. This is the Old Covenant. Because of its prominence then, it's critical that we get it right. And that means two things. One, we need to remember that the Old Covenant is a gracious covenant wherein law follows redemption. And two, though it is a gracious covenant, we need to remember it is not itself the covenant of grace. It is a gracious covenant, but it is not the covenant of grace. The old ministers the new and promise, but it is not the new itself. The biggest problem with the old covenant is simply this. It's not the new covenant. That's it. The old covenant is not the new. It holds it forth in promise, but it is not everything promised Abraham coming to full fulfillment. It's a partial fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, but it's not the fullness thereof. It brings Abraham's covenant into partial fulfillment so that there's a physical form of those promises being realized by the physical descendants, but, but not, not the spiritual realities that are being spoken of there, recognized in full by all who are called the people of God. And thus, an assurance of, of everything promised to Abraham in all of its fullness, spiritual and physical. The old covenant was a national covenant with national Israel. It was an advance in God's redemptive plan, but it's not the apex. And yet, as the old holds forth the new and promise, it was, even then, as those who looked to that promise in faith, bringing the reality of the new covenant to their hearts, making them truly the people of God. What is held forth in the promise, though, is realized only fully in the new. And in the new, God comes down not in fire and smoke, but He comes down in flesh. And He's laid in a manger God drawing near to us to draw us near. And he walks out his days growing old in perfect obedience to God's covenant stipulations to be all our righteousness. And he walks to the cross to bear the wrath of his Father the covenant sanctions for the curses for all of our disobedience. And he rises as the first fruits of the new creation of all things made new so that it is assured that God's people will indeed forever dwell in God's place under God's rule. And this covenant is sure to succeed. It's established by the blood of Christ through which we draw near to the very throne of God knowing it as a throne of grace because there we come as sons before our Father.
And because that's so, we walk in newness of life and say with the psalmist, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119, 10-16. The law has led us to grace. Now grace leads us back to the law. All of this, not so that redemption might be, but because redemption is. Hear, O Israel, the true Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ, hear these statutes and rules. Jesus is Yahweh our Redeemer who brought us out of bondage to sin and into freedom as sons who has brought us out of darkness and into light. Walk as children of light. Receive these words from the fire as they are given to you covenantally. In the word become flesh. Saying be ye holy. As I am holy. Let's pray. Father. Forgive us your children. That so often we look at. The kind of gift that would call us to maturity. The kind of gift that would be a blessing upon top of blessing. We look at it and we say we just want to play. We want easy gifts. But as we've been redeemed by your blood and stand in you righteous in Christ. Standing as daughters and sons. May we receive your law. As a good grace given to us within the context of a covenant of redemption in its fullness. May we receive it and walk in the light. Grow up into the image of Christ. and Display Him to a broken world. Not to testify of anything in and of ourselves. But to be able to declare such were we dead in our trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive together with Christ. He has written his law on our hearts. Given us a new heart. Not of stone. But of flesh. And all that we are. We are by his grace. And it's anticipation of him coming again. And us being like him as we see him as he is. And being conformed to His image, forever we will dwell as God's people in God's place, under God's rule, blessedly so, forever and ever, assuredly so, because of Christ and His obedience and death in our place. All glory be to Christ, in whose name we pray this, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. 
please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.